Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we will be speaking with Jill Versteeg. At the tender age of five, after going on a college visit with her older sister, Jill declared she would go to the University of North Iowa and become a teacher. Seventeen years later, she walked across the stage of that university, diploma in hand, ready to take on the world of education. While she may have fought this early prediction to become an educator in her teen years and even almost changing her major six months prior to graduation, Jill knew in her heart there was no other profession that would fulfill her. Jill began her career teaching summer school at a juvenile detention center and credits those early days of teaching to her willingness to accept all students as they are when they walk into her classroom and that sometimes just showing someone you believe in them is enough to get them to take that first step. From there, Jill accepted a position as a special education teacher and later literacy co-teacher at a large high school in Iowa. In this role, she not only served the students and families of her district, she also served in leadership capacities within her building and district as a professional development facilitator and eventually moved into the role of an instructional coach. As an instructional coach, Jill learned the power of listening to learn and encourage, not simply to respond. Currently, Jill is the Director of Special Programs for two districts. Not only does she have the wonderful opportunity to work with a diverse set of teachers, students, and administrators, she gets to continue her passion of ensuring that all students are empowered to learn, grow, and pursue their dreams. She and her husband, Todd, have two amazingly spirited young children who remind them to love life and see beauty and joy every day. So welcome, Jill Vestig. How are you? I'm doing well, Lily. How are you? I'm doing great. And we are so happy to have you on our podcast. Thank you. Um, as you hey, <laughs> as you know, um, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that with you by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. I am. So, Jill, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah. So this is my 15th year in education and it's gone very quickly. I started out my path, I guess, as a teacher at a juvenile detention center just during the summers, like right after college, right before I started a full-time teaching position. And then every summer for uh, four years, four or five years after that. And um, not an easy position. No, but you know, I think it's where I learned the most. Like I think I learned very quickly how to keep kids engaged and keep things relevant and to really meet the kids where they are when they come in my door. You know, it served me really well. So then I was able to go into a special education classroom at an area high school, kind of a bigger school in the Des Moines area. And 
there I stayed for 11 years as a special education teacher working with kids with behavior needs or reading, literacy, math, whatever, and also co-teaching with literacy teachers at the high school level. Mm-hmm. And I really, really loved that. I think having that opportunity to um, see someone else teach every day and share a room with them and see the good, the bad, and the ugly of each other, I think really inspired me and I think helped push me as a leader, or as a teacher. And within that role of a classroom teacher, I was also like on our building leadership team and helping to start to facilitate some professional learning in my building and a little dabbling a little bit in the district-wide, as well as mentoring teachers when they came new to our building. And then from there, Iowa has a teacher leadership and compensation package for um, building leadership within teachers, kind of a grassroots approach within districts. And I was able to become an instructional coach under that grant, um, kind of the first year that it started in the state. And it was a wonderful journey, actually. I did that for three years. And in that, I think I learned the most from the teachers that I was supposed to be supporting their learning. I think they taught me more than I surely taught them. Or, so those that you were coaching, right? Yes. You know, I was blessed to be in a building with very wonderful professionals who loved their jobs and loved the students that they worked with. And it was wonderful to get to go into classes and um, see what was happening and then coach and work with a teacher after the fact or even pre-lesson, depending on what, you know, wherever we were in a coaching cycle. But I still wanted to kind of continue my journey with leadership. So now I left the instructional coaching role and now I um, moved to be shared between two smaller districts kind of in the area and I'm the director of special programs. And what that means is I help to support the programming for special education, at-risk, 504s, ELP, or the talented and gifted programming between a couple of districts. And it's my first year in this role, so it's been a very steep learning curve. <laughs> but yeah, I was just talking to someone today that my intent is every day gets a little bit better for me and understanding what I'm doing and supporting teachers and kids. And while it's taken me a level away from students, that's been a challenge to kind of remedy. I'm hopeful the work that we're doing is the right work for our kids. Well, Jill, I really thank you for sharing your journey. It sounds like the people in your life have really been supportive of you, especially in the leadership positions. Now, as far as co-teaching, how did you approach that when you first found out about it? What was your thinking? I ended up loving it. <laughs> we'll start there. I ended up loving it. I was so blessed. Two of the teachers that I worked with over the years were just phenomenal. And they had very similar values around education as I did. You know, it's student first and we do what we need to do for the kids, right? Um, but I think when we first started, it was right when IDEA kind of revamped in 2004 and the whole notion of a highly qualified teacher came about. And for a lot of special ed teachers, we're like, well, we are highly qualified. Like Mm -hmm. I I went to, you know, I did a lot of schooling and I have done a lot of work to be where I'm at. What do you mean I'm not qualified anymore? And it really took some time for us to kind of wrap our heads around just a new definition. And once we kind of accepted it and we're like, all right, let's go and let's move forward on this at a wonderful team at that point who really dove into the learning around what co-teaching should look like and spent a lot of time studying Marilyn Friend's work, who's kind of the guru of co-teaching, going and visiting other schools that were maybe a little bit ahead of us, and then really looking at what are our kids' needs and how can we best meet those needs in the general classroom the best that we can. And 
yeah, I got to do that for eight years. And I would say that I am definitely a better teacher because I had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think that the students, they were more empowered. They had a better quality access to core instruction, which then makes them more ready to kind of face the world after they graduate. So, Yeah. And, you know, the reason I bring that up is because it just brought up in me um, co-teaching. I remember when I first encountered that there's an initial reluctance, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's so much, like you just mentioned, so much learning and really coaching each other that really lifts our level of professionalism up. So I really appreciate that. And certainly the students benefit from it. Yeah. Now, Jill, how would you describe your leadership style? I would like to think that my leadership style is one that is purposeful and approachable. So I guess with that, I mean that when I have to make decisions, I hope that people know that I've done a lot of thinking around those decisions. And, you know, there's times that you just have to make a decision, whatever that might be. But, you know, when you're thinking about programming for kids or you're thinking about maybe the coaching conversation you're going into with a teacher that there's been thought put into it. I'm not just kind of shooting from the hip and flying by with it. So I would hope that people see my work as purposeful and that it's driven. And then I think it's also steady. I try to be very consistent, I guess, Mm -hmm. in my approach and my style. And that if people come to me and they are upset and they are maybe escalated, that I can be that calm for them while they talk and I listen and maybe ask a few questions to get them to reflect and think. Because I think ultimately people don't want to necessarily go to a leader or an administrator to solve their problems. They want some support in solving their own problems or their own challenges or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And so I really try to be somebody who empowers another person to come up with their solutions and things that are going to work for them, but yet know that they're going to have support either from me or whoever else we can bring into the fold. So I hope that's where people would find my leadership style to land. So um, these are really powerful concepts. You said purposeful, approachable, which is really important because if we aren't approachable as leaders, then we can't influence people around us. Driven, steady. You talked about being thoughtful and that's important and that you empower others. Yeah. And with that, I think that leaders also need to have that time where they can kind of not be those things, you know, Uh find your own little village of other leaders or your people, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that you can just be really true and honest with sometimes because sometimes we hear things or we have to do things that we aren't always 100% comfortable with. And so having that other person who can just commiserate with you or understands how you feel and then you, it's like your own little therapy session and you get it yeah. out and then you move on mm-hmm. and you start the next day, hopefully better than where it would be if you weren't in the fold. I really believe that as well, because we need to bounce things off of other people. You know, am I thinking this through correctly or wisely? And that's important. And that shows that you really care about the people you lead. So having your tribe is important. Thanks so much for that. (laughs) Now, Jill, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? There's a lot of them. Leadership is a choice. It's not a position. That's Stephen Covey. And I like that idea because with certain positions for people, it may hold some regard or clout even, but it's all about how, what a person chooses to do with in a position they hold. So 
I could, in my new position, I could come in and I could mandate certain things or make swiping changes across a whole series of events. Mm -hmm. But I have to choose my words carefully and I have to choose my actions carefully in order for others to feel comfortable in any changes that might need to happen or they feel that they can approach and ask questions and learn. And so I think it's that choice piece is how we define ourselves within a position. You know, you look at other like world leaders and they may have a title, but it's what they choose to do with that title and what that title allows them to do and how they mitigate that. And sometimes I think that certain titles or positions come with predetermined views by others. Mm-hmm. And just because of experiences or whatever it might be. And so then it still comes back to that person choosing how they want to lead in whatever capacity they want to. And I hope that I always choose to lead with, like I mentioned before, that purpose and that resolve and kindness. And so that's where I kind of feel like that it's a choice. Mm -hmm. When I think about what you just said, you recently became the director of special programs. Is that yes. correct? Yeah. Just yeah. And how there was a, there's a learning curve, right? So yeah. you talked about you're given this position and it's a lot of responsibility, but it's exactly what you said. You step into that position knowing that there's a lot of responsibility, but the leadership that you bring is certainly a choice to grow in your leadership and to learn so that you can best serve those who were really gifted to you to lead. Yeah, you said that much better than I did. <laughs> no, no, no. No, you know what, um, Jill, I'm so honored that you're on because there's so much that we can learn from you. You've been through the ranks. You've been teaching for a long time and you really want to learn. You started with the co-teaching and the instructional coach and the fact that you were really cognizant and aware that you learned so much from the coachee mm-hmm. speaks a lot about your humility and your wisdom and how you want to grow as a leader. And that's really awesome. Thanks. All right, Jill. So can you tell us what type of leader are you inspired by and why? You know, the leaders that have inspired me have been the ones that want to empower others. So it's those people who see something in others, whether it's another teacher or someone that works within a school or whoever that person may be, but they see a spark or they see a capability that maybe others don't and they help bring that capability to light or that become a bright spot for them. And a former colleague that I worked with, she was so good at that because you could be like, just, this was when I was a coach and there were times that you feel a little beat up as a coach and you go into these meetings and you're like, oh, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this learning. And something that they would say would just shift your whole day because they know that the people around them can lift them up and empower them as well. So Mm -hmm. it's those leaders who see something in somebody else that pushes them or allows them to grow, but then also recognizes when those other people can elevate them too. So maybe it's a leader that just maybe sees more than the person who they're leading and wants to bring that to light for them. I think. Those are really the people that inspire me. I hope I can do that for people someday. Yeah, when I think back about the leaders in my own life who have inspired me and have pushed me to go down the path and direction that I've been able to take, they seemed to see something in me and encouraged me, empowered me. And those are the people I come back to for advice. And those are the people I come back to for, they're my tribe, you know, Mm -hmm. and those are the leaders that inspire me. 
Right. And why is that so important for you? I know that you mentioned it twice. You mentioned it when you were describing your leadership style, that you're someone who empowers others. Mm -hmm. And then you feature it here too, as someone who inspires you. Why is empowering others so important to you? I think it's because leadership's not about me. My role isn't about me. It's about the teachers and the kids, the students that I support. And I struggle with leaders who feel that their position is one of reverence or that they're higher than anybody else, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe that goes back to the service leadership pieces mm-hmm. that we studied in school and learned about that it's really about those that we are supporting and helping to grow. I think that always has resonated with me. And those are the type of leaders that I tend to try to surround myself with. Great. Now, Jill, what's the best advice you've ever received? Hmm. My good friend, Sarah once told me, I taught with her for years, and we were talking about somebody or something, I don't remember exactly the context of the conversation, but she made the comment of, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And at the time, I don't remember that being real poignant or (laughs) really anything that stuck with me or really anything at that moment, but it's something that keeps coming back to me now. And I think about it in terms of when you are maybe coaching someone and they're spiraling. So we change the conversation, you know, or I'm working with a team who is frustrated or angry or overwhelmed. And we try to find different avenues into the real conversation that we need to have. And I think about it also in terms of schools and a lot of the maybe negative rhetoric that's out there right now around our public school system, which breaks my heart. And I think that it makes me think about if we don't like what's being said about schools or about us, then we need to go change the conversation. And you do that through educating and you do that through opening doors or opening windows, whatever, Mm -hmm. whatever metaphor wants, you know, fit there. So I think that's always stuck with me. I should tell her that sometime. I don't know that I have (laughs) because it was just a real simple conversation. It wasn't even anything that I should have gleaned this Mm -hmm. um, piece that stuck with me, but was it this Sarah Brown Wesley? Yeah, yeah, it was. Oh, so yeah. we can tell her on the podcast. Tell oh, okay. Her. I'll tell her to listen to it. All right, sounds good. Yeah, her room was a safe place. I think my office was a safe place for her. And, mm-hmm. you know, that person that you can just, oh, I can't believe this happened today or can you believe this? And, but yeah, I feel like we both left each other in our conversations better than where we came in. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Of course. And I love that advice because you're right. We need that kind of advice today. There's a lot that's being said that's very negative. Yeah. We we should be um, taking responsibility to change the conversation, which is one of the reasons why I do this podcast. You know, you spoke about not really supporting leaders who are very authoritative or top down. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, who wants to follow that kind of leadership? But if we're not taught any other way, that's the way we're taught. And that's what, what's right. going to continue to prevail. So we need to change the conversation. And so this is what we're doing. This is why we're yeah. having great conversations, <laughs> Jill. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Now, Jill, what does it mean to have a good team? And how do you build or sustain one? I think having a good team is having people around you that make you better. And I think back to a team that I was on in recent years, an instructional leadership team. And we were all educators, but we came from different backgrounds within our educational lives, I guess you could say. And we had some different views on how things should be done. 
but we all had the same philosophy of it's the kids that matter, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that we got better and we stayed better because we listened, we acknowledged differences, and it was okay to not always agree with one another respectfully. But then at the end of the day, we would work to build consensus around whatever it was we were working towards. And it was that idea of this wasn't my idea, or I maybe don't fully know how this is going to work out, but I'm not going to sabotage it. I'm going to support you because you're my team member. I respect you. Mm -hmm. I support you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to do what needs to be done. And then we will go from there. And I think when you have that kind of team that respects one another, pushes each other's thinking with through questions or sometimes even arguments, (laughs) you know, yeah, that's the team that I do best on. You know, when you talk about respect, that's incredibly important to building a team. It's incredibly important in conversations because you're right. Even when we disagree, we can do it respectfully and learn how to do it respectfully. You know, not be swept away by our emotions, but know how to really funnel that or work through our words, right? Like I'm doing now. (laughs) Well, and I also think it comes to the function of the team. Like if a team knows why they exist, Mm-hmm. And what is the work that they're doing? And when you when a team starts to lose sight of that why, mm-hmm. or that functionality, I think that's when teams start to maybe dissipate a little bit. They get frustrated or they feel like they're spinning in circles mm-hmm. or their work is really not going anywhere. And I think, you know, when you think about leading those teams, it has to be a shared leadership. There might be one person who's the facilitator or you know, helps get things going if there's meetings or retreats or whatever, but it's a shared leadership. Like everyone is invested and everyone is doing the work that they're supposed to do within that team. I think when it starts to fall onto just one or two people, things start to fall apart. So a collective responsibility, maybe. Great. Now, Jill, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? I would say probably about my seventh or eighth year of teaching. I had a group of students who came in and they wanted nothing to do with me. They wanted nothing Mm -hmm. to do with the school. They were very disgruntled almost, Mm -hmm. you know, and as sophomores in high school, um, it was a 10, 12 building. So I, Mm -hmm. it was my turn for sophomores and they came in and just a wall was instantly built between me and them. And I was at a loss because I'm like, gosh, it's usually so easy for me to like start to build a relationship with kids right away. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? And I, mm-hmm. I remember like going to one of my principals at the time and being like, what is going on? What am I doing wrong? And, you know, he was kind of gave the nice, like, give it some time. They're just coming in. They're just getting used to, you know, you're different than the teacher they had before. Maybe your expectations are different. And I think that was the year I really started to shift into more of the thinker and facilitator of learning versus the, it's my world and you're in it. Not that I always did that, but like there were times that I kind of had, I felt like I needed to be more of the sage on the stage approach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But with this group of kids, they were so bright, so smart. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, school had just been a struggle for them. And a lot of it was some behaviors that were standing in their way. And I remember that year I would come home and I'd just like be like crying to my husband, like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he had his non-educational advice that didn't always (laughs) work out. Mm -hmm. But I think that year I started listening more. You know, when they would write, I'd write back in their journals to them. And we started just a very non- 
confrontational dialogue. And it slowly started turning things around. That doesn't mean there weren't times that I had to be firm, you know, especially when there was behaviors that were not acceptable or appropriate per conduct things at school. But it really changed my outlook on when I would get more challenging students, how I would start. I softened my approach. I listened more. I wanted them to make sure they knew I heard them and I was listening to them. Mm -hmm. And that shifted my teaching. Hey, leaders, if you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Now, how long had you been teaching prior to that? Uh, probably six years, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's still newish, but not right. brand new. So, what kept you going here? Because a lot of people would have just given up. <laughs> um, I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> So stubbornness is a virtue. I think you'd have those little glimmers of hope. You know, you'd have those little good days sprinkled in. And so I think that's what kept me going. And I had some really good teachers that I was surrounded by. You know, they were my group that I could vent to and say, okay, I'm thinking this. What do you think of that? And is this idea stupid or what direction would you go? And then you start to get a couple to buy in. And then others start to kind of buy in with them. And I still keep in touch with a few of those students. And that one not too long ago. And, you know, now I guess, you know, even by their senior year, I could be very honest with them. I'm like, you almost made me quit, (laughs) you know, and they'd laugh. And But I bet you learned the most there. Oh, my goodness. They taught me so much more than I taught them that first six months eight months or so of that year. I taught sixth, seventh, and eighth graders who had emotional disabilities. And that was my initiation into special ed. I did fall in love with them. And I am stubborn. So I can certainly (laughs) relate to this. And I really appreciate that because you really showed them what leadership is. Yeah. How you valued them so much that you changed your way of teaching. You were open to other possibilities. And you met them where they were at. You learn to teach them where they were at. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. So can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? You know, it's probably the cliche one, but right now I'm raising two really cool kids. I have a five and eight-year-old, and mm-hmm. I think the success that I find there for my husband and I is that we just have a very good time as a family right now. You sent me a picture of your whole family. Yeah. <laughs> happy family. You know, I don't have a lot of pictures by myself. You know, that's the curse of being a mom, right? (laughs) Okay. So the success I find there is just that we're in, maybe it's just the ages of the kids. They're getting some independence. You have these real cool, deep conversations about whatever it might be. And they're in school right now. And I get to experience um, education through their eyes which is really fascinating. So I've always been a secondary teacher. And right now I'm starting to learn more and more about the elementary world and some of these new literacy laws and initiatives that are in place here in Iowa. And it's really cool to see my kids talking like these little educators and they are telling me what they're learning and what they're reading. And my son came home one day and he's like, mom, 
do you know what metacognition means? And I was what? like, yes, I do. Do you know what it means? I was like bursting and beaming on the inside, you know, and he's talking me through it. I'm like, that's amazing that my eight-year-old is thinking about his thinking and is, you know, it's just, so right now that's my success that I just, well, you know, that's a lot more than some leaders do. <laughs> I know, I know. That's high-level stuff. Yeah. You're raising little leaders. Jill. I hope so. My daughter is going to rule the world, I hope, in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great to hear. Yeah, but I would think that would be, I guess, my personal success. But mm -hmm. I would say some professional success might just be that I've been just afforded different opportunities to grow as a leader. Where I'm at now and then in my previous district, I had people who believed in me and they gave me opportunities to kind of shine, whether it was through leading professional learning or go to some national conferences or work with some other leaders around building toolkits for teachers or whatever it might have been. I think I feel those as success because it's an opportunity that someone is saying, we believe in you mm -hmm. and we want you to go put your best foot forward and hopefully provide a good name for our organization. <laughs> and yeah, they see something in me that I can hopefully share with others. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Now, Jill, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I would tell them to go back to the reason they became a leader in the first place. Mm. Why did they start this journey? You know, I think about this with teachers. So I had the opportunity to mentor several teachers along the way. And, you know, those first few years are frustrating and scary and maddening sometimes. And we'd always have the conversation at some point in our mentor-mentee role, our relationship of why did you become a teacher? And it wasn't in a condescending way. It was get mm -hmm. back to your roots of why was this important to you? And so I think even for a leader, it's why did you want to take on this role? And I've had to do that a lot myself this year, mm -hmm. just with the learning curve that I've had of, okay, why are you doing this, Jill? Why did you want to jump into this? I think when I go back to that and I think about, well, I want to be a leader to empower others and to serve others and to create a world that's better than how I entered it. Right. That's my reasons for it. If I can get other people to think about their reasons for it, whatever those reasons might be, then I think maybe that helps to center and then wine, you know, a good, a good glass of wine. <laughs> a good glass of wine. So I'm not the only one that thinks that way. Um, you said something that really resonated with me. You used the word maddening. And I've not thought of that, but it's certainly very descriptive of how things can become in education when you have a lot of leadership that makes decisions that are not good mm -hmm. for our kids or not good for pedagogy. It can be maddening. And it's what you said is going back to your why. It's really great advice for new teachers, new leaders, for even, you know, seasoned, because you can still feel the pain and feel the stress that happens when good leadership doesn't step up or when we don't really take that on. So I really appreciate that. And a good glass of wine. Yes, yes. Anything red. <laughs> Love red. <laughs> All right. So Jill, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Mm. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? Well, right now I'm relearning. I don't know if it's new learning, but it might be more of making it my focus again around behavior. A few of the buildings I work with or help support, there's just some behavior struggles, especially at the elementary. And so I'm diving into the behavior code 
by Jessica Minahan, and then also building equity, looking at practices that empower students and getting to the root of why kids might be exhibiting the behaviors that they're exhibiting. You know, if remembering that behavior is communication and it's telling us something, uh, maybe something we don't want to hear, but right. it's telling us something and we need to figure out what that function is and what's not being met. So I'm relearning that right now. I need to look at it from a different lens. Instead of my own classroom or coaching a teacher through it, I needed to start thinking about it through a systems lens mm -hmm. and um, what can we put in place for multiple students and families and teachers. Mm -hmm. and I think that idea of a lifelong learner is we should never be done. Right. And that seems contrite, but I don't think it'd ever be a good idea for a leader, especially one in education, who says, I'm done learning. I'm done going back to school. I've been doing this for 30 years. I don't need to learn anything new because we become very stagnant in our work That's if dangerous. we do that. That's it's dangerous very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you think about students that we work with. I mean, I'm only in year 15, but the students I worked with in year one are vastly different than I see from students that I see in classes now, you know, just with the levels of technology that's there and the critical thinking skills that I think are more apparent maybe now than they were previously, or maybe we've set them up to be better critical thinkers. I'm not sure. A lifelong learner has to be evolving and willing to evolve to fit the needs of whatever role they have, whether it's a teacher, a principal, a nurse, whoever it may be, you can't grow stagnant. You don't serve anybody, right? So I think that's what it means to be a lifelong learner. And I don't have any pieces of wisdom of things specifically to read. I think it's because I'm so in the muck of learning some new stuff right now, but I think it's know your questions and then find where or who can give you some answers and start there. Well, I happen to think that's pretty wise. So thank you, Jill. <laughs> so Jill, if there was something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? You know, I think I touched on it a little bit before when I mm -hmm. talked about the conversation. If you don't like it, change the conversation. And I think that we need to get to a point where we're bringing our community back into our school. And I mean that in a way of we empower a lot of people outside of education to make decisions for educators. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they are good decisions and sometimes they're decisions that maybe are ill-informed or they're only hearing from a certain sect of the population or whomever it may be. But I think if we start inviting those playmakers into our buildings, into our classrooms, into our conversations, then we will get better results. And we don't want to show them just the pretty parts, you know? Yes, it's important to show off great facilities or to show off great experiments they might be doing in a physics lab or whatever it might be. But it's also important to show them the ceiling that's leaking, that we have no money to fix, or the textbooks that are 20 years old or whatever it might be. So being open and vulnerable. Being and transparent, yes. And willing to meet each other at the table. Because until we have very real conversations about what student needs are and how schools are able to or not able to meet those needs, we won't have the right change that needs to be in effect. It feels like a lot of blaming right now, and it feels like this vilifying of schools that's really hard for a lot of educators to feel like they are empowered, <laughs> there I am with that word again, to be empowered to make a difference. And so I think if we open those doors or those lines of communication, 
with families, with businesses in your area, with policymakers, either at the local, state, or federal level. That's where we need to start. You know, in order to empower people, you need to trust them. In other words, you empower them to do something, you trust them to do something. And I think that's why it feels so good to be trusted, right? Yeah. That you can deliver and that you have it in your heart to deliver something great. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. Now, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Hmm. Um, I think I'll go back to this Building Equity book mm-hmm. that I've been thumbing through the last week or two. And it's really interesting because it gets us thinking about when we think of equity in schools, we need to think about it on a much broader scope, right? It's about the entry points into education. And if all of our kids, all of our students have an entry point that is specific to them or that's approachable by them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about a text, so uh, Frankenstein. So that's kind of a high level text. And mm-hmm we would use it in one of our classes and we would have multiple entry points into that text because you had students who were very strong readers and maybe advanced readers and could start right from the beginning with very little context prior. And you'd have some readers that, you know what, we're going to start with a graphic novel first to help you understand kind of the gist of the story (laughs) before we start getting into analysis. That's just an example of building equity. So all students in that classroom are able to approach this text maybe in different ways and maybe in a variety of ways in order to get to the same place, which is a deeper understanding. And so as I read this book, there's a section regarding restorative practices in response to discipline. Mm -hmm. And you have a desired response you want from your students, whatever that might be in accordance to your behavior protocols or behavior norms in your building, and the kid's not getting there. And so you had to figure out what's your entry point for them in your conversation with them that will move them to the next level. And that's just been a very interesting thing for me to think about and think about how to bring this to teachers who work with students. So yeah, as I read this book is that idea of entry point and Mm -hmm. the entry points diversified enough that all students within my building or within my school system can get what they need and excel. Love it. So it's building equity. It's building equity policies and practices to empower all learners. And it's by Dominic Smith, Nancy Fry, Ian Pompeian, and Doug Fisher. Thank you. And I love this question because now I have a whole list of books that are recommended (laughs) by amazing leaders. And I I tell you, I have a a year's worth. It's awesome. (laughs) It's great. All right. So Jill, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? So I like my morning routine. Mm -hmm. I'm not a morning person at all. So like on the weekends, the routine goes out and I sleep in. Because again, my kids are at the age, like they can get the mini muffins out of the cupboard themselves now. But on a work day, I like to get up a little early and just have my time kind of warming up to the day. I think through what's my schedule look like. I think through like conversations I might need to have or meetings that are going to be happening, whatever it might be. It's also a time my husband is up. He likes to get up early and work too, but then we can chit chat a little bit, talk about each other's days or whatever it might be. If I don't have that kind of slow warm up to the day, then I feel like a train wreck the rest of the day. Like if I wake up late or if the kids aren't kind of following their normal routine too, I just am not 
my best self. I do try to incorporate meditation sometimes in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that doesn't happen because there have been times I've fallen back asleep right, right. <laughs> during the meditation, but I do need to get back in the practice of that because when I do that, I feel so much more centered and just ready to start the day. And I'm able to kind of roll with the punches a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I need to get back to that. I've made a verbal commitment now that like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and not only that, it's recorded. <laughs> I know. Someone's going to hold me accountable, right? So those things, I also try to just slow down at night. So my day is pretty fast paced all day long, but I like to be able to slow down. And my mom, the best parenting advice she ever gave me was go to sleep at least an hour after your children do. And I was like, well, yeah, because I'm always going to have work to do, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is true. I usually do have work to do, but I still try to take a little bit of time just to disconnect and you know, not be on my computer, watch whatever junk TV I want to watch or read something. And again, it kind of, I get to end my day with my husband and just talk about our day or make fun of the dogs, whatever they're doing Mm -hmm. or things like that. So I kind of try to bookend my day with just some quiet, simple time. And if I don't have those bookends, it's not a good thing for me. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about self-care because Mm -hmm. sometimes we don't do that because our day is busy and sometimes frazzled. But self-care, I put it in here because it really causes us to kind of step back and reflect what is it that I'm doing to be responsible for me so that I can deliver, so that I can serve. So I really appreciate that. And the efforts you make, especially as a person who's not a morning person. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting better. I'm much better than I used to be. (laughs) Good. You know, I'm a morning person and sometimes it's tough. You know, one of the things that I always also want to talk about is maintaining balance because we have long hours. Do you think about maintaining balance and is that important? It's very important. And I'll say as a younger teacher or a newer teacher, I did not do a very good job of it. I'd be at school, you know, until 530 or six and I come home and I might go to the gym and eat and then go back to work until I went to bed. And by about my third or fourth year of teaching, I was like, I can't do this. This is not worth it. One of my former principals at the time kind of sat me down and he's like, you are going to kill yourself. Like you're going to run yourself ragged. You've got to find a way to decompress somehow. And so I started kind of doing that. But then, you know, with being a parent and having a family, I have to balance and make sure I take time to enjoy the little lives that are in my house. (laughs) And I know that when I'm out of balance, my fuse is a little shorter with them. And that's not fair to them because their world has nothing to do with my work world. And so if I'm not in balance, might get a little snippier with them. And that's something I try to help instill in others when they're kind of getting into this profession or when they're starting to enter into some leadership things is that idea of take time for you, take time for your family, take time to do something that you don't normally do. Like over winter break, I read a book, just, you know, a book that I didn't, you know, was nothing for school. It was just for me or dinner with girlfriends or things like that so that I can recharge and have that work-life balance because I think it gets very dangerous if you're not balanced. Yeah. And you know, Jill, I love the fact that you're not only cognizant of that in your own life, but that you also care enough about those you lead that you speak into that and talk to them about making sure they have balance. You value them. And so to me, that is an effective leader, someone who values those around them. And that's important. So Jill, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? 
I think I would tell myself not to sweat the small stuff. And I know that's very cliche, but Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we are leading, we might get an email from someone that's a little pointed. There might be a comment or there might be things that are said or done or whatever that if you allow yourself to get sucked into it, it's going to spiral your whole day or week or whatever it might be. So I think I would tell myself to take things with stride a little bit more, take some of those opportunities as a way to reflect and think, okay, did I handle a situation correctly? Did I, or in the best interest of people, or why might somebody be feeling the way they're feeling right now? And to help move forward versus move backwards. Great advice, Jill. Thank you. But I have a feeling you were stubborn at the time, so you probably wouldn't have listened. Oh, I'm extremely (laughs) stubborn. Yeah, it's probably one of my least favorite qualities. But see, I believe that there's some good in being stubborn. We talked about it. The fact that you stayed the course with these kids. Mm -hmm. I'm stating a case for stubbornness. That's terrible. Okay. Anyway. (laughs) What's sad is I see it in good stubbornness. How would we call it? Tenacity. That's it. That's a good word. I see it in my kids. I keep reminding myself, like, this is going to serve them well when they're adults. This is going to serve them well. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we need to turn stubbornness into tenacity. That's right. It's a good there word. You go. That sounds like a good book. There you go. <laughs> so, Jill, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I don't know that I have anything new, but maybe just circling back to the idea of listening to learn and helping to lift people. Because I really think that's what leadership is supposed to be about. You know, there's times that a leader has to make hard decisions and quick decisions given a situation. But I think what it comes down to is that we are really supposed to lift others and help them to be the best that they can be, Mm -hmm. whether it's a student, another teacher, another leader, whoever. But I would say Mm -hmm. for other leaders out there or aspiring leaders, make sure you know it's not about you. Thank you, Jill. You certainly are helping to lift us by just pouring (laughs) into us. And I really appreciate that. It's been a lot of fun getting to know you and learning from you. Yeah, this has been fun. (laughs) Jill, have a great day and thank you so much. You too. Thank you, Lily. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.